Good morning, church family. As we prepare to dive into the riches of God's word, let's go to God one more time and ask him for help to understand his word and to apply it uh, correctly to our lives. Let's pray. Father God, as we turn to submit ourselves uh, to your word, uh, would you ready the hearts of your people to receive it? Uh, By your spirit, Lord, empower your people uh, to obey your commands, uh, to be, Lord, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your gospel. Uh, Lord, use me for the good of your people and uh, the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I wonder if you're familiar with the term FOMO. Uh, This acronym, it stands for the fear of missing out. So this would apply to the person who, uh, when they're invited to a party or when they hear about an event, they just have to be there. Uh, To miss out on that event or that party, it would hurt. Now you may have heard of that term, but, but have you ever heard of this other term, this other acronym, JOMO? And no, I'm not talking about my nickname. (laughs) JOMO uh, stands for the joy of missing out. So this would describe the person who uh, is totally okay with uh, missing out on the action or or not showing up to that event. To hear the words, I'm so sorry, I have to cancel, is like wind beneath their wings. (laughs) Now, regardless of, of which category that you might fall into, We all have an initial response when we get that invitation or when we hear that about that event. You know, sometimes it's excitement, sometimes it's anxiety. You know, sometimes it's rejoicing and sometimes it's just utter dread. In our passage for this morning, uh, we'll be looking at uh, three different responses to three different invitations. But this is not your average invitation. Uh, This invitation is to a royal wedding feast. So before we actually dive into our passage, I'm going to give us some context so that we can locate ourselves in this gospel narrative. So we are in the third in a trilogy of parables. Thus, as you'll see in a moment, the beginning of our passage begins, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And he is responding to his authority being questioned by the the chief priests and and the Pharisees of his day. Jesus, at this point in the gospel narrative, is he's being treated and he's speaking like a king. Think triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. And in chapter 21, verse 23, these religious elite, they want to know, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And so Jesus responds with these three parables in succession, two of which Pastor Johnny walked us through back in May. So just a quick reminder, that was the parable of the two sons, which indicted the Jewish leaders that the the worst of society, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were going to get into heaven before the religious elite would. And then the second one that Pastor Johnny walked us through was the parable of the wicked tenants, which which goes a step further in actually announcing their sentence. Uh, They said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to those who were producing its fruits. Which brings us to our parable this morning, uh, the parable of the wedding feast, which vividly depicts the spiritual demise of the religious elite, 
uh, and the demise of those who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So with that context in mind, our passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. So this can be found on page 827 in the Pew Bibles, page 827 in the Pew Bibles, and as is always the case. If you do not have a copy of God's Word for you to read, to memorize, to to write in uh, for yourself, by all means, take that one as a gift from us to you. We would want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's words for yourself. Again, this is Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So what Jesus here wants his original audience and for us to understand today is that only those who bear fruit will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That'll serve as our main idea for this morning. Only those who bear fruit will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we'll consider this spiritual truth as we look at this passage through two different lenses. These will serve as our two points for today. Uh, Point one will be verses two to ten, a general invitation, a general invitation. And then point two, verses 11 to 13, an unprepared guest, an unprepared guest. Church family, as we consider this passage, may we be both encouraged to continue bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, as well as strive to be faithful in sharing the good news of the gospel. So beginning with that first point, verses 2 to 10, a general invitation. The kingdom of heaven may be compared. Or in other words, the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the refrain that we've been seeing as we've been walking through these uh, parables. So the kingdom of heaven. Reminder, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And a parable being an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So to make it easier for us us to get to that heavenly meaning, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what each character in this passage is meant to represent. So the king represents God the Father, the, the heavenly king. The wedding feast 
is enjoying fellowship with God in his kingdom. The king's son or, or the bridegroom, that's the Messiah. The servants are messengers of God. So think the prophets, which eventually became the church or, or Christians. And then lastly, the invitees, right? So those who were receiving this invitation, initially Israel, God's chosen people, and as we'll see as we walk through the text, eventually the Gentiles. So if you've ever been to a wedding, we all know the practice of sending out a save the date. The point of the save the date is to let everyone know that you're inviting to the wedding to, to mark off that day in their calendars in order to be at the wedding. This is a modern-day custom that we do today that was actually also done in first-century Israel. The king is throwing a wedding feast for his son, and so he sends out his servants to call those who were already invited to this wedding feast. The date of the wedding, it would have been given out months in advance, leaving all those who received the invitation little to no excuse to actually be there. Now, now take what was a normal thing, right, a normal to the culture, and, and then elevate it to an invitation from the king. This wasn't just any wedding feast. This was a, a royal invitation. And this first royal invitation, sadly, it was met with a rejection. You see there in the text, they would not come. You know, the ESV, I would argue, it doesn't quite do it justice with how disrespectful this rejection really is. Would not come meant didn't want to come. It meant they refused to be in attendance and show up. They were unwilling to be there. A royal invitation rejected. Y'all, this would have been an extreme insult. Uh, a very, very, very dangerous move. This would have been an affront to the king's authority. You don't say no to the most powerful person in the land. This would have been completely unnatural. So the meaning behind this first invitation, this first rejection of the king's invitation. See, this would have pointed us back to Israel's history, to the, to the sending of the prophets, those through whom God spoke. Most often, uh, they would be called to go to Israel, to turn, called Israel to turn from their evil ways and stop worshiping false gods and to trust in the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In essence, the, the, the job of the Old Testament prophets was to call Israel to repent. But like those invited to the king's wedding feast, they would not come. They refused. They were unwilling. The invitation of the prophets was rejected as was the invitation of the king. This rejection, it would have been shocking in both an earthly sense and a spiritual sense. Right then and there, the king would have been completely just to wipe them out for this kind of disrespect. But we learn something of the character of the king in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants. Oh, friends, this is a patient and gracious king. Rather than throwing them in jail or punishing them for their rejection of his invitation, he graciously tries again. But he goes even further with his appeal. Right? He gives them some, some details about the party. He's prepared dinner. They're going to be eating the fattened calf and the fattened oxen. You know, this would be like 
getting an invitation to one of Jeff Greer's cookouts, you know? If you get an invitation to Jeff Greer's cookout, you better show up because you're gonna have an award-winning pork butt. I mean that literally, award-winning. You don't say no to an invitation to a cookout that Jeff Greer is throwing, right? Come to the wedding feast, everything is ready. Friends, this is a very generous invitation from a very gracious king. This king, like our God, continues over and over again to invite sinful human beings into fellowship with him. This king, like our God, is willing to receive all who believe. But sadly, this invitation is rejected as well. His graciousness is met with apathy and hostility. We see the apathy in verse 5. They paid no attention. In other words, they didn't care. Uh, to them, this invitation, it was junk mail. They pulled it out of the mailbox, they looked at it, it went straight into the trash. Didn't even open it up. The depth of their indifference is so clearly seen. They not only don't pay attention to the second appeal from the king, uh, but they go back to their nine to fives. Look at that. Uh, one guy goes back to his farm. Another one goes back to his business as though the most powerful man in the land hadn't just requested their presence at his son's wedding feast. The ordinary activities of life took priority over the king's wedding feast. Church family, in this response, we have a warning for us. There's a warning for us here against apathy and indifference. We have been invited into a relationship with the King of Kings. He calls us not only to himself, but to his people, the church. And yet far too often, we find ourselves prioritizing that which the world prioritizes and indifferent or apathetic to what God prioritizes. Apathy and indifference are like weeds in the Christian life. If we are not regularly searching for them, pulling them out, planting good seeds, they will grow and choke out our zeal for God and for his people. Consider the pursuit of comfort. Uh, what begins as a general, genuine desire for rest and refreshment from the normal pace of life turns into weeks and then months from church due to travel and things like vacation plans. Or, or consider uh, the pursuit of power or, or status. What begins is, hey, I'm just trying to make a living to provide for my family. Turns into nonstop uh, working that takes you away from your physical family and your spiritual family, the church. Friends, vacation and financial stability are not the enemy, but they can become an enemy when they've grown so large that they war against your spiritual well-being. So let me say it this way. When we don't prioritize God, and his people, something else will become priority, leaving us apathetic or indifferent toward that which is spiritual. I'll say that one more time. When we don't prioritize God and his people, something else will become priority, leaving us apathetic or indifferent to that which is spiritual. Some signs that this could be happening? Prayerlessness. Lack of attendance at church. And maybe even lack of desire to gather with God's people. An unwillingness to serve the body. 
Uh, my favorite theologian, J.C. Ryle, speaks to this very idea as he comments on these verses. This is what he says. Open sin may kill thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Multitudes will find themselves in hell, not so much because they openly broke the Ten Commandments, as because they made light of the truth. Christ died for them on the cross, but they neglected him. Members of Oakhurst Baptist Church, are you prioritizing those whom you've covenanted with? Those whom you've promised to care for, to bear with, to rejoice with, to be patient with, to look out for? If you aren't, why not? And if you are, what does it look like? To prioritize God is to prioritize his word and his people. To be committed to Jesus is to be committed to his bride for which he died. You cannot claim to love Jesus and not love the church. There is no category for that in Scripture. Are you apathetic or indifferent to the bride of Christ? Here's a test. What do you do when you see or hear of a brother or sister in sin? Do you turn a blind eye to it? Do you act as if nothing happened? Even worse, do you gossip about it? Friends, that would be the product of living in an individualistic society. That's not a biblical response. To love Jesus is to love his people, and to love his people is to help one another pursue holiness. Press in. Call this brother or sister lovingly to repentance. Proverbs 27 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. My brothers and sisters, we do our souls no good to allow one another to continue on in sin. Do not fall into the trap of indifference towards God and his people. Sadly, this apathy shown by those invited to the wedding feast, yeah, that was only the beginning. In verse 6, we see hostility uh, from others. I'm sure you've heard the expression, don't shoot the messenger. Well, y'all, that's exactly what happens here. The servants whom the king sent to deliver this good news about this amazing wedding feast, they are seized, they're mistreated, and they're killed. These servants, they would have been an extension, an arm of the king, representatives, ambassadors. So to attack the servants is to attack the king. So the meaning in verses that in verse, saw in verses 2 and 3 of the parable pointing back to Israel's history, the rejection of the prophets sent by God, here in verse 6, we see another allusion to Israel's history. Like the servants sent by the king to deliver the message from the king were killed, so were many of the prophets that were sent to the nation of Israel throughout uh, Israel's history in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews recounts the persecution of the Old Testament prophets in Hebrews 11, verses 36 and 37. It says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The king's patience and graciousness is met with hostility and violence. 
these disrespectful and unruly people of the land, they had gone too far. No longer would the king extend kindness. His kindness was not leading them to repentance. He would have vengeance on all who mistreated and murdered his messengers. Verse 7, he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king is God. His anger and rage is his wrath, reserved for those who reject his salvation. You know, I think one way that we could wrongly read this parable would be to compare each of these groups that rejected the king's invitation. Yes, these different scenarios are meant to point us to different parts or aspects of Israel's history, but they all really point to one rebellious act, the rejection of the king's invitation. Uh, To refuse the king's invitation is to rebel against the king. As we see in the scriptures, all who do not accept this free invitation of fellowship with God through Jesus Christ will remain in their rebellion. And the God of highest heaven will not stand for rebellion. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The God of the Bible calls sinful man to turn from sin and to trust in Christ, to to come to the wedding feast. To say no to the king is to imply that there's something better or more worthy of our worship. To say no to the king is to say no to the only way that our sins can be forgiven. It's folly. It's, It's foolishness. Friends, this is an amazing invitation. The king bids sinful human beings to come and partake in the wedding feast. Well, this wedding feast must go on. As we see in verse 8, the food is ready. The decorations are up. The table is set. And those who were invited first have clearly shown that they are not worthy of being in the presence of the king as shown in their rejection of his invitation. So, the king commands his servants to go, therefore, to the main roads, to the street corners, to the outskirts, as one commentator put it, I love this, to the riffraff of society, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. The king's attention, it shifts from the originally chosen guests to the invitation of the unexpected. We know from having the whole counsel of God that like the king, at the rejection of his chosen people, the Israelites, God, in his grace, turns his attention to those who are far and wide, uh, to the Gentiles. We see Jesus allude to this exact transition earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The death and resurrection of Jesus that would take place just a few days after this parable was given would lead to the inauguration and the commissioning of the church. Did you see the beginning of verse 9? I wonder if you caught that. Go therefore. That should look pretty familiar. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
just as the king commissioned his servants to invite guests from far and wide, God has commissioned the church to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations to the riffraff of society. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they were questioning Jesus's authority through this, and that's why he gave this parable to begin with. And Jesus here is making it clear, oh, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority over who comes into the wedding feast. He has authority over who does not. And yet, out of his abundant grace, he extends this invitation to all. Church family, we have been commissioned by the king. We have been commissioned to invite as many people as we can to the wedding feast, or as we saw in our reading in Revelation, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the workplace, at school, at the park, on vacation, overseas, in an Uber, on a plane, wherever you go, you are invited, to, you are to invite those who do not know the king to come into fellowship with the king. So friends, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you inviting to come see the king? May the spirit of God strengthen us all for the task of evangelism. In verse 11 to 13, we have a scene change. Uh, Jesus moves from focusing on this general invitation to a particular uh, guest at the wedding feast. This brings us to point number two, an unprepared guest, an unprepared guest. Uh, we learn in verse 11 that this guest uh, stood out to the king because he had no wedding garments. He, he wasn't dressed for the occasion. You know, without much detail, I think even in our culture today, we would be caught off guard by the sight of someone coming to a formal wedding with informal clothing on, you know? It'd be a little strange to see somebody show up with flip-flops and shorts and a tank top at a wedding where dresses and, you know, suits are being worn. I think we would all agree on that. But there's a hint here in this verse that tips us off to our, a first-century cultural norm uh, there in verse 12. So the question, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Uh, this implies that wedding attire was required by all the guests who arrived at this feast. Uh, culturally, it would have been known that you just don't go to a wedding feast without the proper attire on. And then a feast of this caliber, a feast of the king, for those who didn't have the right clothing, they would have actually been given the right clothing the proper wedding garments. So friends, this wasn't an oversight. This wasn't an accident. This was an outright refusal. This man refused to accept that which was essential for acceptance into the wedding feast. The king's question, it was actually a rebuke. Why have you behaved this way? What, what are you doing? And we see at the end of verse 12, that this man was without excuse. He was speechless. There was nothing he could say in response. He knew he was wrong. His, his speechlessness actually just points to his guilt. He declined that which was required into fellowship with the king. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. What's required to enter into fellowship with God the Father? What were the children of Israel and the Pharisees and the chief priests unwilling to do that God required? Repent and believe. Repentance, a a turning away from sin and a turning towards Christ, a changing of one's mind about God and the gospel, an inward change that leads to outward change, or belief or, or trust. A biblical faith is a trust and a commitment that results in a change of behavior. It's placing our hope for salvation completely in the person and work of Christ and our lives actually reflecting that to be the case. Notice in both of those definitions, the evidence that real repentance and belief are present show up externally. Acts 26.20, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, friends, this means it's not simply enough to say that you're a Christian. It's not merely enough to believe in Jesus. James 2 tells us even the demons believe in Jesus. Uh, It's not even enough to be sitting right here on a Sunday morning. Get this, it's not even enough to be baptized. Good deeds do not earn us right standing with God, but those who have right standing with God inevitably show evidence of that right standing through their good deeds. Friends, James tells us faith without works is dead. The requirement for entry into the kingdom of God is a changed heart which will actually show itself in bearing fruit. So, what does this changed heart actually look like practically? You know, Pastor Dave has just preached 2 John. He'll be preaching 3 John next week, but 1 John tells us what this changed heart actually looks like. I'll, I'll list off a few things for us. A changed heart enjoys fellowship with God. A changed heart is sensitive to sin. It obeys God's words. It rejects the world. It eagerly awaits Christ's return. It experiences decreasing sin patterns. It loves other Christians. It experiences answered prayer. It discerns between truth and error. It has the witness of the Spirit, and it's often rejected and persecuted for the faith. Like the external wedding garments that the king required for all to enter into the feast, genuine faith and repentance that bears fruit is required for salvation, for fellowship with God for eternity. Of course, God is sovereign over salvation, but we have a responsibility to make our calling and election sure as we heard read earlier in 2 Peter 1. Well, then how do we do this? Uh, We take full advantage of the means of grace that God has given us to grow in knowledge of him, and as we do so, we grow in assurance. Friends, our faith grows in proportion to the object of our faith. If we say that we know and love God, we must pursue him in all of the ways that he has revealed in his word, reading it daily, in prayer, praying to him, talking to him regularly, asking of him in such a way that would bring him glory, praising him for all that he's done, giving thanks like we did earlier in this service for all that he's done. In the church, 
living in fellowship with his people, living out the one another's that we see throughout the New Testament. Church family, we lean on one another to encourage one another to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I've heard it said that the church is uh, called the Assurance of Salvation Cooperative. In essence, together, we are, are linking arms Uh, pushing, pulling, working our way towards heaven together as we submit ourselves to God's word. As we look at God's word, we assure one another, yes, amen, you are living this way. Let's keep going to glory. That is the function of the church. We are trying to get to heaven. Heaven is the goal, and this is the means in which God has given us to get there. Now, to our 21st century sensitivities, what comes next might seem a little bit extreme. But when we remember who each person in this parable is actually meant to represent, we begin to to understand just how fitting this punishment was for this crime. Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wedding feast is meant to represent fellowship with God in his kingdom, which means that God alone determines the standards for which people can dwell in his presence, holiness. This place of of outer darkness and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth are meant to represent God's judgment poured out on those who who do not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus using this exact same language throughout the Gospel of Matthew. You know, I find it ironic that so many people talk about Jesus and how he he only talks about heaven and and, and grace and mercy, when in actuality, the thing that Jesus talked most about in the Gospels was hell. And here's another example of that. Matthew 8, verse 11, I read this earlier. It highlighted the fact that the Gospel would now go to the Gentiles, while the rest of that verse or that rest of that passage speaks to the judgment reserved for Israel for their disobedience and lack of trusting God and his promises. So I'll read the verse for us. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The spiritual lesson behind this verse It can only be understood when we remember that fundamentally, mankind's biggest problem is our sin problem. Uh, Sin both indwelling, sin that has corrupted our natures at the core, as well as sin around us externally, the whole world being fallen. Uh, Nothing functions as it's originally intended. This whole earth and everything in it is depraved. And being born with this problem, we are also born as rebels. Uh, From the beginning, we are those with no wedding garment. We are unable to enter into the wedding feast of the king. And left to ourselves, we deserve exactly what the man with no wedding garment deserves, to be thrown into the place, to be cast out into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, but friends, out of the king's abundant mercy and grace, He has not left us to die in our sins. For everyone in this room today who is following Christ, he has sent you a servant to invite you to the wedding feast. A parent, a sibling, a preacher, a friend, 
a campus minister, the Bible itself, a combination of this list, an invitation was brought to you to come to the wedding feast. They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. And friends, by his grace, you responded in repentance and faith. Your story will not be the story of the man with no wedding garment because you received the wedding garments from the king, the gifts of faith and repentance. The righteousness of Christ is now yours. Oh, friends, rejoice in this truth. You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Friends, this is good news. Amen? But sadly, there's also a warning in this passage for the Christian. This man with no wedding garment, did you notice he's at the wedding feast? Somehow he got in, even without the proper attire on. His presence at the feast, it actually gives us another category. The false professor or the nominal Christian. Those who call themselves Christians but have not actually truly repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Uh, those who are Christian, but only in name. It's just, a, it's just a title. It doesn't affect how they live their everyday lives. And as much as humanly possible, the church is to be made up of the regenerate, of, of the redeemed. But as the prophet Jeremiah tells us, only God can truly see the heart. And so... This part of the parable, it points us forward. It points us forward to uh, the day in which all hearts would be revealed, uh, to Judgment Day. The day in which the sheep and the goats will be separated. So let this, friends, be a, a sobering warning that we must examine ourselves. We must strive to make our calling and election sure. Friends, life is short. The clock is ticking. The king will soon come in to see the guests. And as one author put it, have we or have we not got on the wedding garments? Have we put on Christ? That is the grand question that arises out of this parable. So, if you are here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus for salvation, oh friend, right here, right now, this is your wedding invitation. This is your invite to the wedding feast. This parable is clear. Only those who are wearing the wedding garments, only those who are bearing fruit will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, friends, turn from your sin and trust in Christ today for salvation. You can come talk to me after the service or any of the pastors who are standing at the doors on the way out, we would happily talk to you about what it looks like for you to turn from your sin and to begin to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus concludes this parable by giving us the meaning of the parable, summarized. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Friends, this is the main idea. This is what Jesus wants his listeners and us to understand Many people will receive this invitation to the wedding feast. Many people will hear the good news of the gospel. Some will reject the invitation. Some will be apathetic toward the invitation. And some will be hostile to both the messenger and the message itself. Nonetheless, the invitation will go out. The gospel will be shared. Many will be called. This is what's known as the general call. 
the gospel proclaimed to people, all people everywhere. Uh, We strive as Christians, as the Oakhurst Baptist Church uh, here located in Charlotte, to to share that gospel message with many here in this city, but we also strive to do the same to other places, to other countries, to unreached peoples through the support of missions. See, this is is how we desire, desire to fulfill this general call. But as we see with the man with no wedding garment, not everybody who hears will believe. Those who believe are those who have been chosen. This is what's known as the effectual call. In fact, we see this, right? The gospel is heard by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has its intended effect in the heart of the hearer. The gift of repentance and faith are given, and the Christian begins to lead a new and holy life. But only the chosen, those who respond in repentance and faith, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You might be asking yourself, well, then, Jonathan, if God already knows who will and won't believe the gospel, then what's the point of sharing our faith and telling others about Jesus? What's the point of spending money and seeing people sent to foreign countries to share the gospel in missions? I'll give you two reasons. At first, because we do not know who will repent and believe. God has not revealed to us who will and will not respond to the gospel in repentance. Therefore, like a parable that we studied a while back, the parable of the sower, we continue to sow gospel seeds and pray that those seeds land on fertile soil and begin to bear fruit. So we don't know, so therefore we share. And then the second reason, because the normal means of someone hearing and believing the gospel is from the mouth of a Christian. Paul walks us through this gospel logic in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So today is uh, June 19th. It's not only Father's Day, but as you heard in Dave's pastoral prayer, today is also Juneteenth, a day that commemorates when Union soldiers brought the good news of freedom to enslaved black people in Galveston, Texas in 1865 which was two months after the Confederacy had surrendered in the Civil War and two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves in southern states. Uh, These enslaved people did not know they were free because they had not received the good news. The messengers never came. Church family, we have the greatest news. And the person must hear the gospel in order to believe this good news. So we, the church, have the privilege to proclaim this good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful to do our part in sharing this good news, because only those who bear fruit will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.